Section 16 of Lives of Girls Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of Girls Who Became Famous by Sarah K. Bolton. Section 16, Florence Nightingale. One of the most interesting places in the whole of London is St. Thomas's Hospital, an immense four-story structure of brick with stone trimmings. Here is the Nightingale Training School for Nurses, established through the gift to Miss Nightingale of $250,000 by the government for her wonderful work in the Crimean War. She would not take a cent for herself, but was glad to have this institution opened, that girls through her training might become valuable to the world as nurses, as she has been. Here is the Nightingale House. The dining room, with its three long tables, is an inviting apartment. The colors of wall and ceiling are in red and light shades. Here is a Swiss clock presented by the Grand Duchess of Baden. Here is a harpsichord, also a gift. Here is the marble face and figure I have come especially to see, that of lovely Florence Nightingale. It is a face full of sweetness and refinement, having withal an earnest look, as though life were well worth living. What better work than to direct these girls how to be useful? Some are here from the highest social circles. The probationers, or nurse pupils, must remain three years before they can become Protestant sisters. Each ward is in charge of a sister. Now it is Leopold, because the ward bears that name. And now Victoria, in respect to the queen, who opened the institution. The sisters look sunny and healthy, though they work hard. They have regular hours for being off duty, and exercise in the open air. The patients tell me how home-like it seems to have women in the wards, and what a comfort it is in their agony, to be handled by their careful hands. Here are four hundred persons in all phases of suffering, in neat, cheerful wards, brightened by pots of flowers, and the faces of kind, devoted women. And who is this woman to whom the government of Great Britain felt that it owed so much, and whom the whole world delights to honor? Florence Nightingale, born in 1820, in the beautiful Italian city of that name, is the younger of two daughters of William Shore Nightingale, a wealthy landowner, who inherited both the name and fortune of his grand-uncle, Peter Nightingale. The mother was the daughter of the eminent philanthropist and member of Parliament, William Smith. Most of Miss Nightingale's life has been spent on their beautiful estate, Lee Hurst, in Derbyshire, a lovely home in the midst of picturesque scenery. In her youth, her father instructed her carefully in the classics and higher mathematics. A few years later, partly through extensive travel, she became proficient in French, German, and Italian. Rich, pretty, and well-educated, what was there more that she could wish for? Her heart, however, did not turn towards a fashionable life. Very early she began to visit the poor and the sick, nearly Hurst, and her father's other estate at Embry Park, Hampshire. Perhaps the mantle of the mother's father had fallen upon the young girl. She had also the greatest tenderness toward dumb animals, and could never bear to see them injured. Miss Aldridge, in an interesting sketch of Miss Nightingale, quotes the following story from Little Folks. 
Some years ago, when the celebrated Florence Nightingale was a little girl, living at her father's home, a large old Elizabethan house, with great woods about it in Hampshire, there was one thing that struck everybody who knew her. It was that she seemed to be always thinking what she could do to please or help anyone who needed either help or comfort. She was very fond, too, of animals, and she was so gentle in her way that even the shyest of them would come quite close to her and pick up whatever she flung down for them to eat. There was, in the garden behind the house, a long walk with trees on each side, the abode of many squirrels, and when Florence came down the walk, dropping nuts as she went along, the squirrels would run down the trunks of their trees, and hardly waiting until she passed by, would pick up the prize and dart away, with their little bushy tails curled over their backs, and their black eyes looking about as if terrified at the least noise, though they did not seem to be afraid of Florence. Then there was an old gray pony named Peggy, past work, living in a paddock, with nothing to do all day long but to amuse herself. Whenever Florence appeared at the gate, Peggy would come trotting up and put her nose into the dress pocket of her little mistress, and pick it of the apple or the roll of bread that she knew she would always find there, for this was a trick Florence had taught the pony. Florence was fond of riding, and her father's old friend, the clergyman of the parish, used often to come and take her for a ride with him when he went to the farm cottages at a distance. He was a good man, and very kind to the poor. As he had studied medicine when a young man, he was able to tell people what would do them good when they were ill, or had met with an accident. Little Florence took great delight in helping to nurse those who were ill, and whenever she went on these long rides, she had a small basket fastened to her saddle, filled with something nice, which she saved from her breakfast or dinner, or carried for her mother, who was very good to the poor. There lived in one of two or three solitary cottages in the wood an old shepherd of her father's, named Roger, who had a favorite sheepdog named Cap. Roger had neither wife nor child, and Cap lived with him and kept him, and kept him company at night after he had penned his flock. Cap was a very sensible dog. Indeed, people used to say he could do everything but speak. He kept the sheep in wonderfully good order, and thus saved his master a great deal of trouble. One day, as Florence and her old friend were out for a ride, they came to a field where they found the shepherd giving his sheep their night feed. But he was without the dog, and the sheep knew it, for they were scampering in every direction. Florence and her friend noticed that the old shepherd looked very sad, and they stopped to ask what was the matter, and what had become of his dog. Oh, said Roger, Cap will never be of any more use to me. I'll have to hang him, poor fellow, as soon as I go home tonight. Hang him, said Florence. Oh, Roger, how wicked of you. What has dear old Cap done? He has done nothing, replied Roger, but he will never be of any more use to me, and I cannot afford to keep him for nothing. One of the mischievous schoolboys throwed a stone at him yesterday and broke one of his legs and the old shepherd's eyes filled with tears, which he wiped away with his shirt-sleeve. Then he drove his spade deep into the ground to hide what he felt, for he did not like to be seen crying. Poor Cap, he sighed. He was as knowing almost as a human being. But are you sure his leg is broken? asked Florence. Oh, yes, miss. It is broken safe enough. 
he has not put his foot to the ground since. Florence and her friend rode on without saying anything more to Roger. We will go and see poor Cap, said the vicar. I don't believe the leg is really broken. It would take a big stone and a hard blow to break the leg of a big dog like Cap. Oh, if you could but cure him, how glad Roger would be, replied Florence. They soon reached the shepherd's cottage, but the door was fastened, and when they moved the latch, such a furious barking was heard that they drew back, startled. However, a little boy came out of the next cottage, and asked if they wanted to go in, as Roger had left the key with his mother. So the key was got, and the door opened. And there on the brick floor lay the dog, his hair disheveled, and his eyes sparkling with anger at the intruders. But when he saw the little boy, he grew peaceful. And when he looked at Florence, and he heard her call him, Poor Cap, he began to wag his short tail, and then crept from under the table, and lay down at her feet. She took hold of one of his paws, and patted his old rough head, and talked to him, whilst her friend examined the injured leg. It was painfully swollen, and hurt very much to have it examined. But the dog knew it was meant kindly, and though he moaned and winced with pain, he licked the hands that were hurting him. It's only a bad bruise. No bones were broken, said her old friend. Rest is all Cap needs. He will soon be well again. I am so glad, said Florence. But can we do nothing for him? He seems in such pain. There is one thing that would ease the pain and heal the leg all the sooner, and that is plenty of hot water to foment the part. Florence struck a light with the tinder-box and lighted the fire, which was already laid. She then set off to the other cottage to get something to bathe the leg with. She found an old petticoat hanging up to dry, and this she carried off, tore up into strips, which she wrung out in warm water, and laid them tenderly on Cap's swollen leg. It was not long before the poor dog felt the benefit of the application, and he looked grateful, wagging his little stump of a tail in thanks. On their way home they met the shepherd coming slowly along, with a piece of rope in his hand. Oh, Roger, cried Florence, you are not to hang poor old Cap. His leg is not broken at all. No, he will serve you yet, said the vicar. Well, I be main glad to hear it, said the shepherd, and many thanks to you for going to see him. On the next morning Florence was up early, and the first thing she did was to take two flannel petticoats to give to the poor woman, whose skirt she had torn up to bathe Cap. Then she went to the dog, and was delighted to find the swelling of his leg much less. She bathed it again, and Cap was as grateful as before. Two or three days afterwards, Florence and her friend were riding together, when they came up to Roger and his sheep. This time, Cap was watching the sheep, though he was lying quite still, and pretending to be asleep. When he heard the voice of Florence speaking to his master, who was portioning out the usual food. His tail wagged and his eyes sparkled, but he did not get up, for he was on duty. The shepherd stopped his work, and as he glanced at the dog with a merry laugh, said, Do look at the dog, miss. He'd be so pleased to hear your voice. Cap's tail went faster and faster. I'd be glad, continued the old man. I did not hang him. I'd be greatly obliged to you, miss, and the vicar, for what you did but for you I would have hanged the best dog I ever had in my life. A girl who was made so happy in saving the life of an animal would naturally be interested to save human beings. Occasionally her family passed a season in London, 
and here instead of giving much time to concerts or parties she would visit hospitals and benevolent institutions when the family traveled in egypt she attended several sick arabs who recovered under her hands they doubtless thought the english girl was a saint sent down from heaven the more she felt drawn toward the sick the more she felt the need of study and the more she saw the work that refined women could do in the hospitals the sisters of charity were standing by sick beds why could there not be protestant sisters when they traveled in germany france and italy she visited infirmaries asylums and hospitals carefully noting the treatment given in each finally she determined to spend some months at kaiserwerth near dusseldorf on the rhine in pastor fliedner's great lutheran hospital he had been a poor clergyman the leader of a scanty flock whose church was badly in debt a man of much enterprise and warm heart he could not see his work fail for lack of means so he set out among the provinces to tell the needs of his little parish he collected funds and learned much about the poverty and ignorance of cities preached in some of the prisons because interested in criminals and went back to his loyal people but so poor were they that they could not meet the yearly expenses so he determined to raise an endowment fund he visited holland and great britain and secured the needed money in england in eighteen thirty two he became acquainted with elizabeth fry how one good life influences another to the end of time when he went back to germany his heart was aglow with a desire to help humanity he at once opened an asylum for discharged prison women he saw how almost impossible it was for those who had been in prison to obtain situations then he opened a school for the children of such as worked in factories for he realized how unfit for citizenship are those who grow up in ignorance he did not have much money but he seemed able to obtain what he really needed then he opened a hospital a home for insane women a home of rest for his nurses or for those who needed a place to live after their work was done soon the deaconesses at kaiserwerth became known the country over among the wildest norwegian mountains we met some of these kaiserwerth nurses refined educated ladies getting in summer a new lease of life for their noble labors this protestant sisterhood consists now of about seven hundred sisters at about two hundred stations the annual expense being about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars what a grand work for one man with no money the pastor of a very humble church into this work of pastor fliedner florence nightingale heartily entered was it strange taste for a pretty and wealthy young woman whose life had been one of sunshine and happiness it was a saint-like taste and the world is rendered a little like paradise by the presence of such women back in london the papers were full of the great exhibition of eighteen fifty one but she was more interested in her kaiserwerth work than to be at home when she had finished her course of instruction pastor fliedner said since he had been director of that institution no one had ever passed so distinguished an examination or shown herself so thoroughly mistress of all she had learned on her return to leehurst she could not rest very long while there was so much work to be done in the world in london a hospital for sick governesses was about to fail from lack of means and poor management nobody seemed very deeply interested for these overworked teachers but miss nightingale was interested 
and leaving her lovely home, she came to the dreary house in Harley Street, where she gave her time and her fortune for several years. Her own frail health sank for a time from the close confinement, but she had seen the institution placed on a sure foundation, and prosperous. The Crimean War had begun. England had sent out shiploads of men to the Black Sea, to engage in war with Russia. Little thought seemed to have been taken, in the hurry and enthusiasm of war, to provide proper clothing or food for the men in that changing climate. In the desolate country there was almost no means of transportation, and men and animals suffered from hunger. After the first winter, cholera broke out, and in one camp, twenty men died in twenty-four hours. Matters grew from bad to worse. William Howard Russell, the Times correspondent, wrote home to England. It is now pouring rain. The skies are black as ink. The wind is howling over the staggering tents. The trenches are turned into dikes. In the tents, the water is sometimes a foot deep. Our men have not either warm or waterproof clothing. They are out for twelve hours at a time in the trenches. They are plunged into the inevitable miseries of a winter campaign, and not a soul seems to care for their comfort, or even for their lives. These are hard truths, but the people of England must hear them. They must know that the wretched beggar who wanders about the streets of London in the rain leads the life of a prince, compared with the British soldiers who are fighting out here for their country. The commonest accessories of a hospital are wanting. There is not the least attention paid to the decency or cleanliness. The stench is appalling. The fetid air can barely struggle out to taint the atmosphere, save through chinks in the walls and roofs. And, for all I can observe, these men die without the least effort being made to save them. There they lie, just as they were let gently down on the ground by the poor fellows, their comrades, who brought them on their backs from the camp with the greatest tenderness, but who are not allowed to remain with them. The sick appear to be tended by the sick, and the dying by the dying. During the rigorous winter of 1854, with snow three feet thick, many were frozen in their tents. Out of nearly 45,000, over 18,000 were reported in the hospitals. The English nation became aroused at this state of things, and in less than two weeks, $75,000 poured into the Times office for the suffering soldiers. A special commissioner, Mr. MacDonald, was sent to the Crimea with shirts, sheets, flannels, and necessary food. But one of the greatest of all needs was woman's hand and brain, in the dreadful suffering and the confusion. The testimony of the world thus far has been that men everywhere need the help of women, and women everywhere need the help of men. Right Honorable Sidney Herbert, the Secretary of War, knew of but one woman who could bring order and comfort to those faraway hospitals, and that woman was Miss Nightingale. She had made herself ready at Kaiserworth for a great work, and now a great work was ready for her. But she was in frail health. And was it probable that a rich and refined lady would go thousands of miles from her kindred to live in feverish wards where there were only men? A true woman dares do anything that helps the world. Mr. Herbert wrote her, October 15. There is, as far as I know, only one person in England capable of organizing and directing such a plan, and I have been several times on the point of asking you if you would be disposed to make the attempt that it will be difficult to form a corps of nurses, no one knows better than yourself. 
I have this simple question to put to you. Could you go out yourself and take charge of everything? It is, of course, understood that you will have absolute authority over all the nurses, unlimited power to draw on the government for all you judge necessary to the success of your mission. And I think I may assure you of the cooperation of the medical staff. Your personal qualities, your knowledge, and your authority in administrative affairs all fit you for this position. It was a strange coincidence that on the same day, October 15, Miss Nightingale, her heart stirred for the suffering soldiers, had written a letter to Mr. Herbert, offering her services to the government. A few days later the world read, with moistened eyes, this letter from the war office. Miss Nightingale, accompanied by thirty-four nurses, will leave this evening. Miss Nightingale, who has, I believe, greater practical experience of hospital administration and treatment than any other lady in this country, has, with a self-devotion for which I have no words to express my gratitude, undertaken this noble but arduous work. The heart of the English nation followed the heroic woman. Mrs. Jameson wrote, It is an undertaking wholly new to our English customs, much at variance with the usual education given to women in this country. If it succeeds, it will be the true, the lasting glory of Florence Nightingale and her band of devoted assistants, that they have broken down a Chinese wall of prejudices, religious, social, professional, and have established a precedent which will, indeed, multiply the good to all time. She did succeed, and the results can scarcely be overestimated. As the band of nurses passed through France, hotel keepers would take no pay for their accommodation. Poor fisherwomen at Boulogne struggled for the honor of carrying their baggage to the railway station. They sailed in the Vectus across the Mediterranean, reaching Scutari, November 5th, the day of the Battle of Inkerman. They found in the great barrack hospital, which had been lent to the British by the Turkish government, and in another large hospital nearby, about 4,000 men. The corridors were filled with two rows of mattresses, so close that persons could scarcely walk between them. There was work to be done at once. One of the nurses wrote home, The whole of yesterday one could only forget one's own existence, for it was spent, first in sewing the men's mattresses together, and then in washing them, and assisting the surgeons, when we could, in dressing their ghastly wounds after their five days' confinement on board ship, during which space their wounds had not been dressed. Hundreds of men with fever, dysentery, and cholera, the wounded were the smaller portion, filled the wards in succession from the overcrowded transports. Miss Nightingale, calm and unobtrusive, went quietly among the men, always with a smile of sympathy for the suffering. The soldiers often wept, as for the first time in months, even years, a woman's hands adjusted their pillows, and a woman's voice soothed their sorrows. Miss Nightingale's pathway was not an easy one. Her coming did not meet the general approval of military or medical officials. Some thought women would be in the way. Others felt that their coming was an interference. Possibly some did not like to have persons about who would be apt to tell the truth on their return to England but with good sense and much tact, she was able to overcome the disaffection, using her almost unlimited power with discretion. As soon as the wounded were attended to, she established an invalid's kitchen, where appetizing food could be prepared. 
one of the essentials in convalescence. Here she overlooked the proper cooking for 800 men who could not eat ordinary food. Then she established a laundry. The beds and shirts of the men were in a filthy condition, some wearing the ragged clothing in which they were brought down from the Crimea. It was difficult to obtain either food or clothing, partly from the immense amount of red tape in official life. Miss Nightingale seemed to be everywhere. Dr. Pinkoff said, I believe that there never was a severe case of any kind that escaped her notice, and sometimes it was wonderful to see her at the bedside of a patient, who had been admitted perhaps but an hour before, and of whose arrival one could hardly have supposed it possible she could already be cognizant. She aided the senior chaplain in establishing a library and schoolroom, and in getting up evening lectures for the men. She supplied books and games, wrote letters for the sick, and forwarded their little savings to their home friends. For a year and a half till the close of the war, she did a wonderful work, reducing the death rate in the barrack hospital from 60% to a little above 1%, said the Times correspondent. Wherever there is disease in its most dangerous form, and the hand of the spoiler distressingly nigh, there is that incomparable woman sure to be seen. Her benignant presence is an influence for good comfort, even amid the struggles of expiring nature. She is a ministering angel, without any exaggeration, in these hospitals, and as her slender form glides quietly along each corridor, every poor fellow's face softens with gratitude at the sight of her. When all the medical officers have retired for the night, and silence and darkness have settled down upon these miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed, alone, with a little lamp in her hand, making her solitary rounds. With the heart of a true woman and the manner of a lady, accomplished and refined beyond most of her sex, she combines a surprising calmness of judgment and promptitude and decision of character. The popular instinct was not mistaken, which, when she set out from England on her mission of mercy, hailed her as a heroine. I trust she may not earn her title to a higher, though sadder, appellation. No one who has observed her frail figure and delicate health can avoid misgivings lest these should fail. One of the soldiers wrote home. She would speak to one and another, and nod and smile to many more. But she could not do it all, you know, for we lay there by hundreds. But we could kiss her shadow as it fell, and lay our heads on our pillows again content. Another wrote home. Before she came, there was such cussing and swearing, and after that, it was as holy as a church. No wonder she was called the Angel of the Crimea. Once she was prostrated with fever, but recovered after a few weeks. Finally, the war came to an end. London was preparing to give Miss Nightingale a royal welcome. When, lo, she took passage by design on a French steamer, and reached Lee Hurst, August 15, 1856, unbeknown to anyone. There was a murmur of disappointment at first, but the people could only honor all the more, the woman who wished no blare of trumpets for her humane acts. Queen Victoria sent for her to visit her at Balmoral, and presented her with a valuable jewel, a ruby-red enamel cross with a white field, encircled by a black band with the words, Blessed are the merciful. The letters V.R., surmounted by a crown in diamonds, are impressed upon the center of the cross. Green enamel branches of palm, tipped with gold, form the framework of the shield, 
while around their stems is a ribbon of blue enamel, with the single word, Crimea. On the top are three brilliant stars of diamonds. On the back is an inscription written by the queen. The sultan sent her a magnificent bracelet, and the government, $250,000, to found the school for nurses at St. Thomas's Hospital. Since the war, Miss Nightingale has never been in strong health, but she has written several valuable books. Her hospital notes, published in 1859, have furnished plans for scores of new hospitals. Her Notes on Nursing, published in 1860, of which over 100,000 have been sold, deserve to be in every home. She is the most earnest advocate of sunlight and fresh air. She says, An extraordinary fallacy is the dread of night air. What air can we breathe at night but night air? The choice is between pure night air from without and foul night air from within. Most people prefer the latter, an unaccountable choice. What will they say if it be proved true that fully one half of all the disease we suffer from is occasioned by people sleeping with their windows shut? An open window most nights of the year can never hurt anyone. In great cities, night air is often the best and purest to be had in the 24 hours. The five essentials for healthy houses, she says, are pure air, pure water, efficient drainage, cleanliness, and light. I have known whole houses and hospitals smell of the sink. I have met just as strong a stream of sewer air coming up the back staircase of a grand London house from the sink as I have ever met at Scutari, and I have seen the rooms in that house all ventilated by the open windows, and the passages all unventilated by the closed windows, in order that as much of the sewer air as possible might be conducted into and retained in the bedrooms. It is wonderful. Miss Nightingale has much humor, and she shows it in her writings. She is opposed to dark houses, says they promote scrofula, to old papered walls, and to carpets full of dust. An uninhabited room becomes full of foul air soon, and needs to have the windows open often. She would keep sick people, or well, forever in the sunlight if possible, for sunlight is the greatest possible purifier of the atmosphere. In the unsunned sides of narrow streets, there is degeneracy and weakliness of the human race, mind and body equally degenerating. Of the ruin wrought by bad air, she says, Oh, the crowded national school, where so many children's epidemics have their origin, what a tale its air test would tell. We should have parents saying, and saying rightly, I will not send my child to that school. The air test stands at horrid. And the dormitories of our great boarding schools, Scarlet fever would be no more ascribed to contagion, but to its right cause, the air test standing at foul. We should hear no longer of mysterious dispensations, and of plague and pestilence being in God's hands, when, so far as we know, he has put them into our own. She urges much rubbing of the body, washing with warm water and soap. The only way I know to remove dust is to wipe everything with a damp cloth. If you must have a carpet, the only safety is to take it up two or three times a year, instead of once. The best wall now extant is oil paint. Nursing is an art, and if it is to be made an art, requires as exclusive a devotion, as hard as a preparation, as any painter's or sculptor's work. For what is the having to do with dead canvas or cold marble, compared with having to do with the living body, the temple of God's spirit? Nursing is one of the fine arts, 
I had almost said, the finest of the fine arts. Miss Nightingale has also written, Observations on the Sanitary State of the Army in India, 1863, Life or Death in India, read before the National Association for the Promotion of Social Science, 1873, with an appendix on Life or Death by Irrigation, 1874. She is constantly doing deeds of kindness. With a subscription sent recently by her to the Gordon Memorial Fund, she said, Might but the example of this great and pure hero be made to tell, in that self no longer exists to him, but only God and duty, on the soldiers who have died to save him, and on boys who should live to follow him. Miss Nightingale has helped to dignify labor and to elevate humanity, and thus has made her name immortal. Florence Nightingale died August 13, 1910, at 2 p.m., of heart failure, at the age of 90. She had received many distinguished honors, the freedom of the City of London in 1908, and from King Edward VII, a year previously, a membership in the Order of Merit, given only to a select few men, such as Field Marshal Roberts, Lord Kitchener, Alma Tadaman, James Broyce, George Meredith, Lords Calwin and Lister, and Admiral Togo. Her funeral was a quiet one, according to her wishes. End of section 16